You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. It is great, as always, to have your company. My guest in this episode is Brad Giles. Brad, more than anyone else I've ever spoken to, thinks and talks about leadership like an engineer. He's used his time as an entrepreneur, strategic planner and leadership coach to break the profession of leadership into its fundamental moving parts. If you want to hear and think about the mechanics of leadership, what good leaders actually do, then this is the episode for you. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brad Giles. Brad Giles, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Now, Brad, your topic, your book cuts absolutely to the heart of everything we're about on the Team Guru Podcast. You talk about the difference between a good, an okay manager, an okay leader compared to the great ones, those ones that we remember long into our career, long past where we've moved through that relationship the type of people that we remember. And I can't wait to get to the guts of that and and learn all about the model that you've created to help us understand the results and the roles that we should be thinking about. But first of all, I'd love to hear in your experience what you've observed through your career that made you want to write this book. What were those things that you saw in organizations that made you realize that this thing from good leader to great leader was a concept that you could work on and hone a a really tidy message about? Yeah. So I am a serial entrepreneur and I look back at a period of time around 2001 and I had a company that was growing quite fast, 85% type fast. We were recognized nationally in the BRW Fast 100 and a lot of those types of things. We were doing a lot of things right, but we were doing a lot of things wrong as well. And I learned so much through that experience. And I guess that I got to a point where I thought, I don't want anyone else to have to go through what I went through and subsequently learning how to make that company work and then going on transitioning into being a leadership team coach and effectively putting myself into a situation where I force myself to learn and learn and learn and learn. So I've got my own experience in uh, being an entrepreneur. I've got the learning component. And I suppose we're all learners to a degree, but I've really dug quite deep into that. And then number three is really around watching the same things happen over and over in other leadership teams that I'm working with. So through all of that, there's a bit of pattern recognition that begins to happen. And I'm thinking, well, why did I do that? And that worked or that failed? And why is that person doing that? And you see enough of that. And I've been, you know, I've been in leadership team coaching for 10 years now. You see enough of that, and then you begin to piece it all together. So a few years ago, I just began to kind of collate this data and begin to, to I guess, uh, assemble this model and then start to test it with people. And that's how it came about. Tell us about some of those things that happened in your own booming organization and the things that you described that you've observed over and over in other organizations that people listening will relate to. People listening will have seen and felt the repercussions of that type of leadership. Yeah, absolutely. So 
I'm going to give you a typical example of an engineering type manager. So it could be any kind of technical organization or IT or anything around that area. Mm. So the IT CEO could, this hypothetical person, they could be more in love with the tech than they are with their role as a CEO. They may enjoy more working on the computer rather than working with people. And specifically, one of these five roles is called the ambassador role. So that is getting out there and promoting the business and being the face of the company. Well, this hypothetical tech leader may not be so interested in that. They may be more interested in perhaps writing some code or dealing with the project managers or working on the sprint lanes or whatever it is that floats their boat. But being the face of the company is a very important role. That idea that we have technical experts who are promoted through an organization because of their skills as a technician and all of a sudden find themselves in a leadership or a management role, that is a concept that we've spoken about so many times on this podcast because I think it is one of the most powerful things that happens in organizations so consistently that leaves us wanting for more as an organization, whether you're a a leader or a direct report. That idea of people who've been promoted out of a technical role into a management role, is that the nub of the issue for you when you look across organizations or you look within your own organizations and you see what is full short of being great leadership? There's a dirty little secret, okay, that people don't often talk about at the executive or CEO level. And frankly, that is that people don't know what to do. Mm. People get into this role through promotion or they start their own business and then the business grows and they're successful, but they don't know. To your point, the reason I wrote the book is there's no clear definitive outline of this is the role of a CEO. The original working title was called The Five Roles of a CEO. And then I presented it to enough people and they said, this is applicable across all broad leadership. Uh, You've got to scale it back a little bit. But the problem is, is that We know what a doctor does. We know what a baker does. We know what so many of the professions do. We know what we expect of them. But where does it say what we expect of the leader, of the CEO, of the managing director? I couldn't find it. I spent, you know, effectively 20 years trying to find that book and I couldn't find it. So I wrote it. So what is it that people do when they get that magic promotion where for the first time in their career, they go from being in a team of doers, whatever the technical area is, into that person who is leading or managing the team of doers for want of the type of direction that you're talking about, for want of a role description for what a manager really does, what do people tend to do instead? What is the default position? Well, I'll give my answer and I'd love to hear yours because you play in this space too. In my experience, I find that people take it on and they often revert back to what they know. Okay, so if they've come up through the sales function, let's say, they were very, very good salesperson, they became the sales manager, sales director, and then the opportunity arose and they become the CEO. In the absence of clarity on that CEO role and what they have to do, they often revert back to what they were doing, sales director perhaps, and they find themselves occupying a lot of their time doing sales type functions. But what do you think? What, what was your, what's your experience? How would you answer that question? 
Look, I would have to give exactly the same answer. I wish I could come up with something more broader. I was going to say more interesting, but there's nothing more interesting than that because that's the truth. And we see it in all different types of organizations that in all different industries and at all different levels, it's not just the CEO. It's that frontline manager. It's the next manager up. It's the you know the, the manager, the GM level, the EGM level. They're all people who, if they don't if they haven't flicked that switch, if they haven't woken up and realized that, hey, I'm no longer a salesman, I'm no longer an engineer, I'm no longer a whatever the technical skill was, my new technical skill is to be a leader. And if they haven't flicked that switch, under pressure and for want of something to do, because they want to make a good fist of this new opportunity they've been given, what they will do is they'll go back to being a salesman or an engineer or whatever the technical skill was. And that's where that horrible thing comes, that micromanaging comes from in poor leaders, because that's what they know. They think, well, I used to deliver this as an individual performer or as part of a team. Now I'm leading that team. I've got to do it all over the place. And I've got to see what each of you are doing to the minute detail. That's micromanaging. And micromanagers are leaders or managers who don't know what really to do. They really don't understand the role of leadership, so they default to what got them there. Now, what we see in really fantastic leaders, and I know you'll get to this, people who are well-developed, they're mature, dynamic leaders, is there's been some point, and there's no doubt lots of them go through that stumbling early period, but there's been a point where they've woken up and said, hey, actually, this is a whole new discipline. And I've gone from being the best technical deliverer. I'm now a beginner leader. And it's okay to be a beginner yeah. as long as you've you've flicked that mental switch and you know there's a whole new set of skills to develop and work on and understand here. So I would give pretty much the same answer. And it's it is a theme that has just been it is the most common theme of this podcast. And we can't talk about it enough because it is the most common problem across organizations in all industries. And as I said, at all levels, it's not just at the CEO level. Yeah, I agree. And as I said, that's why I, the people I initially gave the book to, they said, you've got to expand it out. But I want to draw on something that you said there. So arguably, the most successful management thinker of the 20th century, uh, it could be argued, was Peter Drucker. Okay, Peter Drucker's most successful book was called The Effective Executive. And on page one of The Effective Executive, Peter Drucker says, the job of an executive, okay, is to be effective. The job of a manager is to be efficient. So then, then when we think about that and we think about what you've just said, well, how can I make my effort count for the most? That's a really interesting question when we think about that in the context of what Drucker said. And as a leader, when and he defined for clarity, he defined an executive, someone who's in control of their time. So you're not selling your hours, you're in control of your time. So it does apply across a wide range as well. When we think about that, well, then we've got to think, well, what is the difference between the average and the great? And if we look at the leader, what is the difference between the person? Because we know that the average company could produce a net profit, for example, if you're going to go straight to net profit, between 3 and 5% to pick a number completely out of the air, and things will be coasting along. That'll be great. But are those leaders really making their effort count for the most? Are they being as effective as they can for a whole range of reasons? And yeah, that's the when you see this type of pattern in leaders enough times, you're often prompted to act. 
and that's really what prompted me to write this book. Are leaders really being effective? All right. Let's get to it, Brad, because I think it's going to take some time for us to get our head right around this model that you've got about the five results and the five roles. Tell us why this is the answer to the age-old question that we've just described and observed. What is this model and, and how does it address everything that we've just talked about? So as you said, beginning for clarity, beginning with the leader's job is a different profession. Okay, This is not just a salesperson wearing a new jacket. The leader's job is a new profession. And within that context as well, the job is not to do other people's jobs. Okay, Now we go to the other side and we say, so what's the difference between a good leader and a great leader? And I contest that there are five key areas because one might say, as I said, net profit. They might immediately go, well, you know what? Great leader is going to create a higher net profit percentage or maybe EBITDA or shareholder value. Well, what if they're creating a good net profit and destroying the balance sheet? What if they're creating shareholder value and the retention rate is terrible? People are just leaving the business. So it's got to encompass a number of things. So the first of the results is a higher percentage of top performers. Okay, so great leaders as opposed to good Generally, they create a higher percentage of top performers relative to their peers. They're like a magnet where people want to work for great leaders. Number two, connected to that is higher retention. So great leaders will have a higher retention rate relative to peers or relative to good leaders. Number three is higher productivity. So they will get more gross profit dollars per dollar paid in wage expenses or productivity for the people that work for them. So they find a way to make that work more. And then number four is consistent growth. So rather than a roller coaster, consistently they will grow the business. You can rely on them. You can bank on them week in, week out, month in, quarter in, quarter out. They're going to consistently grow the business. And then finally, of the five results is consistent results. So you're not going to see a sky-high profit one quarter and then lost the next one. They're going to have consistent results. I'll quickly repeat those. Higher percentage of top performers, higher retention, higher productivity, consistent growth, and then consistent results. So they're the five within the book that I've highlighted. Very nice. And and is there, there's obviously a, a relationship. So, so your model is based around the idea of the five results and the five roles. I love those results but I think I'm going to enjoy the roles a little bit more because I'm imagining the role that the leader plays points to that same breadth and it and it gets towards that performance. It's the reason that we end up with that performance. Absolutely. So percentage-wise, the roles make up 5% of the book and the vast majority of it is explaining the roles and then breaking down what that role means and a story around that role, and then a tool to help you to execute on that role. So the five roles are accountability. So there is accountability for all employees and suppliers. Role two, the CEO performs a strategic role as an ambassador. A positive culture unites the team and attracts the right people. Four, the company strategy delivers a unique and valuable position in the market that is different from competitors. And then five, key risks to the business are reduced through succession planning. So they can be summarized to role one, accountability, ambassador, culture, strategy, and succession planning. And so to dig in, how, does, how do they connect? How do they correlate? 
So I'll give an example of higher productivity. So if you can imagine a star, a star has five points and one of the points is the culture role and another point is the strategy role. So between those two points, so when a leader effectively executes on the culture role and the strategy role, they will get the higher productivity result, okay? And why is that? Well, we know, first of all, that in a in an environment, in a culture that is positive, we know the data tells us that higher productivity will result, that people are more uniform, they're focused on achieving the result rather than trying to figure out what to do or working against each other. But then second is strategy. So if strategy is defined as a unique and valuable position in the market that's different than competitors, that will create higher gross profit sale dollar that then connects to a better effectiveness for employees or ultimately a higher productivity. So by executing on those two things, they will achieve that result. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. So what I want to do, Brad, is just to pick your brain on each of those five roles. I, I, I just want to go back through each of them and get from you what are some of the observable behaviors that you see from a fantastic leader when they're performing each of these roles? And and what, what are the things that that leader is thinking about to ensure that they're ticking the box of each of these roles? For example, accountability. What does it mean for someone, a, a leader, a CEO, or a GM, or a a manager to be performing the role of accountability? What are people seeing and what's that leader thinking? So for context for listeners, um, there's a checklist that I'm going to try to not just read out, but I'm going to try and put some depth to your answer around that. Okay. So accountability, well, this is an environment of accountability. Now, now let's go back to the connection to the results. When you have an environment of connect when you have an environment of accountability, you will have consistent results because people are accountable. They know what they're working on. They understand how to succeed in the role. A and then B, high performers, the top performers, the best people, they like that environment because if they look across and they see you as a leader not taking action on the people in an accountability context, they look and think that you just don't care and they think, well, you know, like I'm going to go somewhere where they do care, where I'm the one that's doing most of the work around here, creating most of the results. So within all of that, number one, there's, there's accountability for employees and suppliers. So the first thing, and it's first for a reason, is all employees understand every aspect of what it takes to succeed in their role. Okay, this is the greatest source of misery in the workplace, in my humble opinion. Why? Because you've got a leader who has an expectation of what it takes to succeed in a role that person isn't doing, let's say a salesperson. Now, when that isn't clearly communicated and the salesperson doesn't understand every single little aspect of what the leader thinks it takes to succeed in the role, they're never going to have a chance to get near that. So really important to have everyone understanding what it takes to succeed in their role. Number two, pretty simple. And it's around KPIs. We all know what KPIs are, right? But if you've ever seen an advert on a job board like Seek or Monster where person has a job advert and they've got 10 or 15 KPIs, well, 
that's good. Which of those will help me to keep my job? Which of those will get me a promotion? And which one of those will get me fired? So really, uh, drill in terms of accountability, making it clear where the priorities lie. So one or two KPIs for their role. Next one, failure has a consequence. So I have seen, as I suspect you have so many times, where people have failed and there hasn't been a consequence. Now, that doesn't need to be firing someone. It could be as simple as, you know what? You really let me down and you really let the team down. It could be as simple as that, like a what just a conversation. A micro consequence, yeah. Something really small and simple. Letting people know that you let them down. Because again, if you don't do those types of things, people think that you just don't care. Team meetings have an agenda. This is again drawing towards the accountability. A team, you know, uh, there's a, a saying that I've heard, which is no agenda, no attender. So there must be an agenda. And then employees and suppliers who don't consistently perform are removed from the business. Like, it's not that we need to be firing everyone all the time, but ultimately, we've got to say, at what point do we let that person go? We know that there's a big problem in society where people keep people for too long. Now, this is in the context, this is not legal advice, (laughs) but this is in the context that you need to comply with the law, right? You need to be fair to the people. But ultimately, how many times do they need to fail before you're going to act on it and and let them go? Because everyone else is looking at you and you're diminishing your own leadership. So that's the accountability section. So I'm just going to I'm just going to summarize that. I'm just going to go back over that again. There's so much great stuff there, Brad. So accountability, there's there's I think five five points here is everyone understands what it takes to succeed in their role. That's great. It's so simple, but I don't know how many organizations do we have where there are people floating around who don't know what it is that they're supposed to be doing, what success looks like for them. Number two is understanding where priorities lie. Number three is that failure has a consequence. It doesn't need to be being fired every time. Like you said, it could just be a micro consequence to understand how you've let the team down, how, you let, how you've let the organization down or the boss down or a client down, just a conversation that points that out. Number four is the team meetings have an agenda. I love that. How many organizations don't have problems with team meetings? And lastly, number five is that consistent non-performers are removed from the business. Because if you don't do that, then that just has this detrimental effect on the culture of the organization. That's great. I love it. That's all about accountability. Now, number two is that the CEO or the leader acts as an ambassador. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So this is an interesting one that a lot of people may not be familiar with. But in my research, it it was really hard to not come to this. So you can't be the head of the company without being the face, right? Now, this is in the context. So everything that, that we're talking about here, if we assume that this is best practice, then the question becomes, how do we make best practice work best in this organization? So so it's prescriptive, but you've got to take it perhaps with a grain of salt or, or adapt it to suit your environment. So the CEO performs a strategic role as an ambassador. So if the CEO isn't an ambassador, it's there isn't a face to the company, it's a bit leaderless, but adapt it to suit yourself. So I'll go through, I'll, I'll dig straight into it. So with number one, CEO's got a system to build a public profile, such as industry forums, industry leadership, blogging, or speaking. Now, that might not be your cup of tea, but maybe it would be more around, well, I, I want to serve on an industry body or I want to do something. There's What I'm suggesting through this is that the absence of 
a profile and it doesn't need to be like Gary Vaynerchuk who's videoing his every move. It's to suit your style. But it's important to understand without an ambassador, without being the face, it's it's going to create some problems. So number two, CEO attends major customer contract signings or product launches. Now, it would be very easy to say, hang on, Brad, I just thought that you said that we don't do other people's jobs. Now, I agree, but this is in an ambassadorial capacity. So imagine if you were going to buy a house and you and your partner have fronted up, it's time to sign the contract and you're talking to the salesperson and the CEO of the house building company walks in and says, hi, David, I just want to uh, just want to step in for a moment and just say, we're really happy that you've come in and you know, we, we're really proud to build your house. We think it's great. We're going to try to do the best that you can. I'm not here to do the salesperson's job, but I just want you to make let you know that, you know, we care and that we really value your business. Now, that's a little bit of it a- doesn't, uh, It doesn't detract from the, the role of the salesperson. It just gives the organization a, a human face. That's it. You can't be the head of the company yeah. without being the face. So- Yeah, great. So that's an example, a, a quick lived example of- ambassador at work in this in this sense. So contract signings or product launches, just to be there, imagine, think about it like this, the Queen of England, once in a while, we, we wheel her out. That could be inappropriate, but we'll work through that. But, you know, we bring out the Queen and she performs an ambassadorial role. It's not the job of the Prime Minister. It's not a different role. This is, this is an ambassadorial role. So next is, employees learn the core values and core purpose stories monthly from the CEO. People respect what you inspect. And so what that means is if the leader is talking about great things that people have done around the values and the purpose of the organization, people will at the very least pay attention to it or even lesser, they will think, well, we know what he cares about or she cares about. So people are learning those stories. The next is employees are welcomed by the CEO physically or virtually within the first week of employment. And this is important in an ambassadorial role when we get to the culture section, because what we're trying to do here is to unlock the pride. We want people to be proud of where they work. And so this is a person who's joined, you know, the first few days can make a huge difference to someone's time in an organization. So uh, they are being, yeah, they are being welcomed. We want to unlock that pride. And then finally, in the ambassador section, every quarter the CEO launches the company plan and priorities. So how many times I have heard people in an organization say, we don't know what we're supposed to do. The data around that, I think, is that 92% of people don't know the company's top priorities and they don't know their top priorities. And then they don't even think that the company's got a plan at all because they don't know. So there is a ambassadorial formal communication system whereby the leader says, this is our plan for the next 90 days and these are our priorities to everyone in the organization through whatever format it takes. So that rounds out the ambassador role. That's fantastic, Adam. So we're talking about the five roles. We've talked about accountability. We've talked about ambassador. The third one is all about culture. Tell me about culture. What are the things that you see from a fabulous leader when it comes to culture? Well, just think about a magnet, okay? So, well, a great culture is a magnet for people. One of the businesses I owned was a job board, and I got to see behind the scenes at two almost identical adverts, and the only difference was the culture. And one was getting one, two, three 
respondents and one was getting hundreds. It was just fascinating. So when it comes to culture, think about it unites the team first and it attracts the right people and it attracts them like a magnet. So number one, pretty simple, but a lot of people don't do it. Core values and core purpose are known by all employees. I don't think I need to explain that. Number two, there is a qualitative and quantitative system of feedback Sorry, between all employees and leaders. Qualitative and quantitative between employees and leaders. And that's like a 360, so it's two-way. So what are the numbers and uh, what is the what is the general feedback? Number three, and this is the new concept, the ideal employee needs are identified and the employee promise helps to attract the best employees at the pay you offer. So to quickly step out for that uh, on that for a second, because it is new, we know what our brand promise is as an organization perhaps, but what is it? that we're promising our employees. Because in my observation, when you drill down and you talk to a lot of employees, perhaps even at a barbecue, a lot of them say, they said they were going to do this and they didn't. They said they were going to do that and they didn't. So much unhappiness comes from people who have promised things and then don't. So understanding mm-hmm. who is your ideal employee? Who is the ideal person that we would love to work at this organization? Number one. Number two, And how do we meet those needs and how can we wrap a promise around that that's actually unique and measurable and it aligns with our core purpose and it aligns with our brand promise. So if you can think about a a straight line, on one side, we've got the employee promise, which is delivering to the employees what they need. As we go along the line, that gets to the core purpose. By delivering the employees what they need, we also are able to live the core purpose And then at the other end, we're also able to deliver to customers what they need. So when we get that in alignment, think of it like a seesaw with the the center being like a a teeter-totter type thing. When we get that in balance, that's when it works really, really well. And then next, employee promise KPIs are measured weekly and performance is displayed all around the business. I think that's pretty simple. It's got to be measurable. We've got to then tell people how we're performing. If we're performing bad, people won't care, provided that we're measuring it and talking about it. And then we're looking, how can we improve that? Where core values breaches occur, employees are reprimanded or terminated. And this is really where the toxic employee situation comes from. Someone's high on productivity and they're low on values alignment. You know, no one wants to sit next to them. No one wants to talk to them. And the leader doesn't take any action. So we can't have a great culture if we've got a lot of those people in the organization. So that rounds out the culture role. There's a lot of things in there that sound great, but they're just difficult to do, aren't they? The the qualitative and quantitative understanding or appreciation between employees. I mean, that's tough. You're talking 360 feedback pretty regularly. And, and that idea of the employee promise and measuring it every week and displaying that I mean, that is a a serious commitment to organizational culture. Absolutely. But I think you'd agree there is no shortage of things to do. In fact, that's the whole problem with society today. We've got the internet and every single day there's another new thing that's popping up. (laughs) Maybe I'm a new thing that's popping up for you, right? But my point is, let's go back to what Drucker said, right? The job of an executive is to be effective. The job of a manager is to be efficient. So understanding the the concept around these five roles, understanding why they're important. And then the biggest challenge really, once you've understood it, is to say, okay, well, which one is worthy of effort? Which one should we focus on first? Which one 
is really going to move the needle. And what is the problem? And that's why it's connected to the results. Because if you've got a problem with retention or if you've got a problem with consistent growth, you can kind of drill into those those roles in that sense. So yeah, there's they are they are difficult things. There are tools in the book that can help you to complete them, but the job is the first job is to figure out which one's going to move the needle the most. And of course, the book that Brad's referring to is is his book, Made to Thrive, which is a fantastic read. I'll have the details of Brad's book and where you can get it on the show notes for this episode. Now, Brad, we've talked through accountability, ambassador, culture. There's two roles to go, and that is strategy and then planning. Tell us a little bit about what we see from a fantastic leader when it comes to strategy. Okay. So I guess it begins with the question, what is strategy? And there's a great HBR article on that. So what does strategy mean to you? Do you have a strategy? So I can remember, first thing that comes to mind, there was a, an, an international engineering firm that I was working with, and they thought that strategy was coming together from all over the world into one room and then talking about operations. That's not strategy, okay? So Michael Porter describes strategy as a unique and valuable position in the market that is different than competitors. Why? Because it's a defendable position, number one, but number two, it's the only way to truly get higher gross margins relative to your competition in your industry. So that's why I define the strategy role as being the company strategy delivers a unique and valuable position in the marketplace that is different than competitors. So the first one is quarterly and annually, the leadership team meets offsite to reflect, evolve the company strategy and set priorities. Okay. So what that means is that there is a meeting rhythm that is established, A, and B, we're working on the strategy not working on operations and A, working on the strategy and then B, setting the priorities for the company and the departments for the next quarter. Number two, the company's long-term 10-year-plus BHAG or Big Hairy Audacious Goal from Jim Collins is known by all staff and actions are taken each quarter to progress toward the BHAG. So it's a bit like vision, right? People know where the company's going, what the, the vision is of the leadership team and we're taking some kind of progress toward that that aligns with that each quarter. Now, the next one is the other side of that seesaw I spoke about a few minutes ago. So ideal customer needs are identified and the brand promises helping to attract the best customers in the market. Again, the opposite of that seesaw. So before we had ideal employee needs, now we've got ideal customer needs and we're getting the best customers in the market. Next, brand promise KPIs are measured weekly and performance is displayed all around the business. So that goes back to the previous point. So it's the same thing. We're measuring employee, ideal employee needs and ideal customer needs. And then we're telling our employees, all employers, how we're performing on those metrics. And then finally on the strategy section is each key product or service contributes to the company Hedgehog. Any which do not are discontinued. Now, Hedgehog is obviously from Jim Collins and the Hedgehog is the intersection of three circles, which is what are you deeply passionate about, number one? Number two, what can you be the best in the world at? And number three, what drives your economic engine? So if we've got products that don't meet those three criteria, we need to discontinue them. And that forms the strategy section. Fantastic. Now, I'm not interjecting or asking a lot of questions because we haven't got much time left, but I just want us to be able to round out these five roles because there's so much valuable stuff in them. So I'll just let you keep running at it, Brad. We're up to the lucky last, and that is all about succession planning. And, and I know that this isn't what 
a lot of people might think it's about. So explain to us what you're thinking when it comes to succession planning and what a great leader does. Let's look at what happens as a result of the succession planning role. The two results that are connected to that are consistent growth and consistent results. So this is in the context of we embed systems in the business that will help us to generate consistent growth and consistent results. Because the problem is without that, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it can be a bit like being on a roller coaster. You're going up and you're going down and you're up and down, and it's a horrible, horrible ride. So what we've got here is uh, establishing systems that protect roles and profits and suppliers, a whole range of things. So each role in the business has a virtual bench of two people who are contacted quarterly. So that means that employees, we have for the best, for the key roles, we have potential replacements that we're talking to. Products and services at risk of decline or disruption are mapped quarterly and actions identified to replace these revenues. So we're looking at the revenues and the revenue streams within the business and saying, is our GP going down there or what's happening here? And then we're analyzing that and and understanding how can we replace those revenues so we're not sort of taken out. Suppliers at risk of decline or disruption are mapped quarterly and we're looking how can we replace these suppliers if necessary. Um, So we've looked at so far the employees and we're thinking about them. We've looked at the products and services. We've looked at suppliers. And then we're moving on to decisions on new opportunities, new staff or investments are evaluated against a documented set of criteria because you can't trust people's brains. So that means if we're going to invest in something, it must meet this criteria. It could be a piece of equipment. It could be a new role. It could be expanding. And then finally, each leader in the business has appointed a clear successor who could replace them from within. So that rounds out the succession planning. So as you said, it's not in the traditional thing that people may think of when they think about succession planning, but it's more about achieving that consistent growth and those consistent results. So when we think about all of these things that you've listed tonight, they're so valuable and I love how organized your thoughts are and that they're very objective, aren't they? And and when I think about the role of a leader, there's that really there's a fundamental core objectivity, a rationale behind it. But there's also the soft human skills that come in as well. That that ability to empathize and develop relationships with all the people around you. Where does that kind of thought come into the model that you've just described for us for a a very senior leader? So. That is a part of the personality side. If I understand the question correctly, that is a part of the personality side. So that comes out in, for example, the ambassador role. So, you know, I would put it this way. It's any personality should be able to plug into this model, okay? But if any personality is undertaking the ambassador role, and we go back to the example of the new home that was being signed, the contract, and then the ambassador comes in, that is showing that they care. So working within that, people, I think that, you know, in my experience, more often than not, a lot of the time, the problem is not so much, it's that people oscillate between too soft and then too hard. And Mm. and they don't, you know, they're like, oh, we're not going to act on that. We're not going to fire that person. No, we're not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And then suddenly- Something happens. I've had and enough. They go, right, you go on. I've, I've had enough. They're dead to me. Go. Get yeah. them, I don't care how much it costs, just get them out. So yeah. what I'm trying to do yeah. is is apply a, a rigorous system of thinking to the, the CEO role and say, 
well, let's follow something that works so that we don't need to have that oscillation. And what really matters is yeah. the people who are reporting to that leader, they have that confidence that that person is has their best interests and the best interests of the organization at heart, and they're doing the right things. Yeah. So I think I've answered this. Now, you, you've sold me on that. You, you're right when you said any kind of personality can plug into this because what you've done is created a model that maintains in a really objective way or the whole gamut of effective leadership. And you're saying if you keep thinking about all of these things, this these 25 points that you've made within these roles, then you, you lay your personality over top of that and you make sure you're not weighted towards one end or, or the other, but you're understanding the, the full responsibility. You you really do know what it means to be a CEO or a senior manager. You're not just trying to do your old technical job five times. You're actually adding that kind of executive value that you spoke about. And I just bring my personality to that. And I lay that over top and it and it falls out through the types of relationships that I form and the way that I conduct myself. But this framework gives me a, a solid base to stand on, no matter who I am coming into the role. Now, I get that. You've completely sold me on it. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm very pleased. <laughs> that's, that was my intent. <laughs> <laughs> and we, are, we have run out of time, Brad. I just let you talk and talk because it was so fantastic. It was such rich information. I really appreciate you coming on the Team Guru podcast. Look, it's been great to be here, David. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I mean, I, I love this. I'm so passionate about about you know helping people to not go through what I went through and what I've seen. So the opportunity to share with your listeners is great. Thank you. Good on you, Brad. And that was Brad Giles. I told you he approaches leadership like an engineer wanting to understand and master each of its moving parts. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Brad on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.